on today's episode. My core view is if we humans, when we actually get more intelligence at our command, if we cannot turn that into a positive, like what is it we're hoping for? Should we prefer a world where we develop artificial stupidity and try to use that to make our lives better? That doesn't seem very good. So this is our big chance. You know, let's not blow it. Welcome to the Active Share podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing. I'm your host, Hugo Scott Call. Today I have with me Tyler Cowan. Tyler is the Holbert L. Harris Chair of Economics at George Mason University and serves as Chairman and Faculty Director of the McCarthy Center at George Mason. He graduated from there with a BS in Economics and received his PhD in Economics from Harvard. He is co-author of the economics blog Marginal Revolution and author of several best-selling books. His latest is Talent, How to Identify Energizers, Creatives and Winners Around the World. He writes a column for Bloomberg View, has contributed extensively to national publications, and is also a podcast host of the excellent Conversations with Tyler. Tyler, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Okay, let's get cracking. So I admire your podcast interview style. You ask quick to the point questions. Here's mine in the style of you. Which business models get created or disrupted by this wave of AI? Many large business firms will become much smaller. So if you look at OpenAI, which of course built ChatGPT, when they made their key breakthrough, they had maybe only 250 employees and AI did a lot of the work. If you look at Midjourney, which is the best image creator AI, I believe last I heard they had 13 employees. Imagine a world famous company with only 13 people working there. So insofar as AI does the work, the long-standing ascendancy of big business will in some sectors come to an end. And that will be shocking. There will be many more projects, but the entities undertaking those projects will hire fewer people. So Instagram, before it was bought by Facebook, now Meta, didn't have many employees, but it ended up inside a behemoth, a dominant company. So do you see wider moats for the incumbents, the big tech firms, or do you see them disappearing in a world that goes open source. So for some companies, will AI reinforce competitive advantage, but it'll be disrupted for others. And when you think about the types of companies it's disrupted for, we can all agree that travel agents were not consigned to the dustbin of history by the internet, but it was pretty damn close. They had to go niche. So what types of business model are most vulnerable, do you think, to the coming wave of AI? And do you think that some incumbents with tremendous distributional power, maybe high switching costs, strong network effects, actually might get stronger because of this? Well, the large tech companies have been laying off quite a few people for a while now, even before AI. I'm not pessimistic about their business prospects, but again, just in terms of their size as measured by number of employees, the notion that you get out of Harvard, you're a bright you know, 22-year-old, and of course you think I'll go work for Google or Facebook, I think those days are over. They don't need so many people. Those companies are expanding what they do and limiting their workforce at the same time. And in terms of mergers, I think we will see more alliances and fewer mergers. So Facebook buying up Instagram and WhatsApp, did it seem lead to overemployment in those uh, product lines? And what OpenAI has done is build an alliance with Microsoft rather than just sell the whole company to them. 
So it seems to me that's working better. You keep dynamism, but you get the advantages of Microsoft's huge presence in the cloud computing market and all of their resources. So distributional power still really matters. And does that matter because I still want as a consumer, whether that is B2B or B2C, I still want one entry point for my kind of digital experience? Or do you think I'm happy to be a subscriber to lots of different large language models, LLMs? So is distributional power still super important? And what you just said is you can take someone else's product and put it in your bundle and put it through your distributional system. Is that still a big competitive advantage? I think what consumers want is something like two or three different entry points and not too many. What I see actually happening is a proliferation of an excess number of entry points. Too many walled gardens, too many gates, too many logins required. And it's not what people want. But if you don't do it, you know your, your data can be sucked dry or you can lose your competitive advantage or your media and you can't charge people for what you're doing. So I think we're headed to a world where everything is too cumbersome. There's too many passwords to remember, too many different sites to go to. You have to ask yourself, well, I was on Twitter. Well, what about, you know, Jack Dorsey's new product? What about Mastodon? What about, uh, you know, Threads now from Meta? Uh, how many of these are people going to do? I think we're testing people's patience with the very internet itself. But here we're really talking about consumers, individuals. When I think about a highly skilled manufacturing company, surely they just will adopt, they're very good at adopting technology and staying relevant, staying industry leading in what they do. So I, I think there's a swathe of the economy that will just absorb this and use it intelligently to whether it makes them more productive, whether it makes their product better, whether it makes their customer relationships better, but it doesn't necessarily change their overall position. Oh, I agree. I mean, say you're a telecom company, right? You're just going to use AI. It may or may not be visible to uh, your direct customer base, but you'll become a lot more productive. You'll hire fewer people. Uh, it won't be an emotional event for anyone other than those who are laid off. And the world is just going to move there pretty quickly. I think a lot of businesses are actually way behind on AI, but many others are not. You know, you look at Stripe or Coca-Cola, you see these rather rapid alliances being built with open AI, and there's just going to be much more of that. So overall, the kind of who benefits question, in some parts of the economy, I can see how this reinforces corporate profits and maybe increases them. Productivity flows back to the owners of capital. But in other parts of the economy, it's clearly going to increase the consumer surplus. And we saw that, you know, the simple example of Uber now can tell me what time my car is coming. And that, that has some benefit to me. But I probably just spend time scrolling in a not very productive way. So the consumer surplusing, I would assume you would agree, increases from this wave of AI. Does that surplus get reinvested into anything productive or is it more just scrolling and not doing a whole lot because we're distracted by technology? Well, I don't see most of it as scrolling. So if you take institutions... Right now, so many of them have their information poorly organized, and it's all siloed and hard to get at. It will just be in the future very easy to get at your institution's information, and it will be organized for you however you want. And it will mean much less scrolling, say, through databases. So I think the promise of AI is less scrolling. You can just talk to your device and say, oh, send me the 10 best tweets from today that you think I would like the best, and so on. So I view it as a liberation of human energy and the ability to spend more time touching the grass. But of course, we'll see. So do you think that the benefit to the average individual of, of access to an LLM is something that just 
gives them a happier life or does it actually make them a more productive economic asset? I don't think we know yet, and I'm not sure what the average individual is or means. So I think the people who are willing to take initiative and learn a lot from LLMs and manage more projects with all these free, essentially, research assistants, those people will do very, very well. I doubt if that's the average individual, but it is still the case that the average individual will benefit from all those new projects. That's the way I I tend to look at it. You've written about stagnation are we on the cusp of a productivity wave that actually moves us out of stagnation because of AI, because of this wave of AI? That's exactly right. I think this wave of AI will move us out of stagnation. What's the mechanism, though? How does it flow to economic growth? Again, back to the kind of, is it, is it a productivity surge? Is it something different? Is it actually a much more virile period of competition in the economy that maybe breaks open some monopolies, redistributes some rents? How does it work mechanistically? I think you have three major areas where there will be tangible advances quite soon. One is what you might call education and tutoring. Another is medical diagnosis. And then the third is how institutions organize and order and store their information. That third one will probably take longer than the other two. Uh, With a bit more of a lag, I think the rate of scientific progress will be advanced because people running laboratories now have all these new intellectual resources and aids and assistance. The most general way of looking at it is you could imagine that now every person who wants it has, you know, a free research assistant, colleague, and architect, is the way someone once put it. Now, how valuable is that? I I don't think we know yet. And maybe a lot of people just won't do anything with that. That's to some extent what I'm observing. But it is revolutionary. And AI also is likely to get better. I think it's hard to predict at what pace. But we're probably just seeing the beginning of all of this. And what are the constraints? Is it data, your point around how data is organized? Is it skills? Is it actually just broad access? Is it compute power? Behind compute power, you've got energy. How do you think about the things that, if there were to be disappointment around here and an under-realization of potential, the things that are likely to constrain it? I'm most worried about human inertia. So I give you know talks or discussions on AI all the time. And just the number of people who don't seem that curious or they haven't yet spent time with, you know, GPT-4+, plus, or they're content with the inferior version and don't seem to notice or to care. And these are typically very smart people, often high net worth, or a lot of them have PhDs. So I think humans are falling down on the job, is what I see so far. Now, there are plenty of ways in which current AI could be better, but we're not close to having fully exploited the capabilities we now have. Pretty much on every every podcast I do mention Charlie Munger, and he, and he always says, show me the incentives, I'll show you the behavior. Is it an incentives issue? Well, change typically is slow historically. If you look at electricity, which of course was a revolutionary development, by the estimates of some economic historians, it took us 40 years to really reconfigure factory floors fully to take advantage of electricity. Now, I don't think AI will take 40 years, but if electricity took 40 years, you need to reevaluate just how rapidly a lot of human beings will adjust. And there, there is a big profit incentive, of course, to have electricity in your factory. So returns to labor, returns to capital, what are the obvious, I guess, most positive, most bearish implications for labor, and then the same again for capital? Well, I think if you're a worker doing routine work with words or routine back office functions, the chance your job disappears in the next three to five years is really quite high. So those individuals typically will be worse off. 
If you are someone who is creative, takes initiative, and knows how to manage research assistance, whether human or virtual, uh, you will be much more productive. If you're at the top of your field and willing to learn this stuff, you will be much more productive and more successful. Now, in terms of capital, I think it will favor large regions with English language, a fair amount of stability, and where people will want to put all these new projects. So in the world, I think India and Kenya are relatively likely to be winners. South England and North America, those would be my picks for the places that will benefit the most. And small backwater countries that are already not doing so well, I think will lose talent and resources. And there are many of those. Because they're held back by poor communication infrastructure, so it's an access point, or is it something else? Well, let's just say there's going to be a lot of new projects of whatever kind, energy, science, arts, who knows what. And you want to put your new project somewhere in Africa. Are you going to choose, you know, Burkina Faso, which is, you know, very small, or are you going to choose Kenya? I think it's just a speculation, but I think you're going to choose Kenya. So geographically, there'll be a greater concentration of projects in areas with some scale. You didn't mention China, and I'm always interested in competitive advantage between countries and what's what drives more successful countries relative to less successful countries. China has a fantastic database. You have no choice. You, you, you surrender your data to the government there. So it has a tremendous database. It has access to computer power. It has extremely good education at the top. Why won't China be a winner from this? Well, China's all about politics, whether you're talking AI or anything else. I don't feel I can predict Chinese politics. But periodically in world history, it seems Chinese politics goes badly wrong. That may or may not happen now, but that would be the key variable. But I would just say this, AI may prove to be China's curse. If it strengthens the regime and allows for much more and more thorough surveillance, that's bad news in my view. The possible upside is simply that Chinese citizens will want to use VPNs to access Western large language models. And that in essence breaks down the great firewall because you can ask those models anything and they will tell you more or less the truth, including about you know the Uyghurs at Tiananmen Square or whatever else. So it could be an enormous soft power victory for America and the West. Does it overall make, make the world more connected or less connected? It will make most places more connected. So I was just in Kenya and I needed to you know, speak to some people in, in their language, which in that case was Swahili. And I took out my chat GPT app and it just did it for me, you know, in, in two or three seconds. Now, there may be some countries, I don't think China will do this, maybe North Korea, that will just shut down all contact because they won't want the contaminating influence of Western LLMs. So you could imagine a China that either shuts down VPN access or so monitors it, the people are afraid to use it. I wouldn't say that's my prediction, but you can't rule it out. So countries will be forced to choose either quite a bit more integrated or much less integrated. I think most countries will end up more integrated. That is a desirable outcome. Again, these are very big questions. Any major change is going to have a lot of downside, no matter what it is, just as electricity did, the printing press did. Uh, But my core view is if we humans, when we actually get more intelligence at our command, if we cannot turn that into a positive, like what is it we're hoping for? Should we prefer a world where we develop artificial stupidity and try to use that to make our lives better? That doesn't seem very good. So this is our big chance. You know, let's not blow it. How big of a moment is this where you're seeing separate lanes of technology merging? Is this like the Renaissance? Is this like the space race? Is it this sizable epoch-defining moment we're in? 
I think it's much bigger than the space race, which the final implications of the space race are still unclear. I view it as comparable to the printing press, which took quite a while to matter. But when it did, it really did. And most of the gains went to users, right? Gutenberg did not become a billionaire. No, although we still talk about him. Um, sure. And we'll still uh, talk about Sam Altman, you know, X number of years from now. Good for Sam. Yes. And of course, once you can turn him into a bot, you can talk to him into eternity. Um, That's right. So. Let's do some I'm social. I'm training a Tyler Cowen bot. You know, I, I, well, I might do this. Well, you should, and then I could create my own, and we could interview each other into eternity, and it would be great. But it makes sense, right? It makes sense. And and this is, I mean, I'm going to ask you this question actually about investing. You know, why not take the ten best minds in any field and just record everything they have, capture their mental models, capture their pattern recognition skills, capture everything about how they think, and then just have the very best created into eternity in each field. You know, you can have people who may not be alive anymore still helping you solve problems. And that still happens today. Of course, that's education, but beyond that, in a much more active way. Is that is that just a, a slightly daft picture I'm painting? I don't think it's crazy at all. There are some barriers. One are the legal issues. So if someone creates a an AI likeness of me, do I have the rights to that or do they? It seems to me under current law, they have the rights, but I'm not sure current law will stick. And it's certainly unclear. And that limits investment. And also the reinforcement training and learning you need to do on these models. It's fairly complex, especially if you want to capture Paul Krugman or Milton Friedman or, mm -hmm. or whoever. And that takes a fair amount of time. And the people you need to do it are quite smart and they have high opportunity costs. I don't think any of that will stop it from happening. But just there's a lot of different steps that will need to come together for this to be a reality. You probably know the website, what is called conversation.ai, where you can chat with great figures from the past, Napoleon, Einstein. That's not good enough yet to be what you're suggesting, which is that it's like almost like having the person as an intellectual contributor. Uh, but we'll get there. But there's a lot of bumps in the road. Like, do I want a Tyler Cowen bot competing with me? I guess I think I do, but I think a lot of people don't. Yeah, I can see why. I can see why. So we were in stagnation. Hopefully we're leaving stagnation. Part of stagnation was inequality, whether that's wealth or income. Let's talk about some social implications from this wave and further waves of AI in terms of does it resolve or widen inequality, do you think? in the average country? Well, I think for the world as a whole, inequality will go down a great deal. So, so many countries right now do not have many doctors or many good doctors. And in those countries, you can right now, using the current service, get medical diagnoses that are slightly better than good North American doctors. That's a reality. Most people aren't doing it yet, but it's just not going to take that long. So that will radically lower what you might call medical inequality. Now, within a single nation, it's always a more complicated story, like inequality of measured income could either go up or down. We're not sure. It could be the big winners are like, you know, carpenters and gardeners and working class people with skills the AI can't mimic. I don't think we know that for sure, but that's the most likely scenario. And the losers would be the semi-intellectual word manipulator, word cell class who can be copied more readily. And that would make the situation more egalitarian. And that would make us embedded in the ideals of the French Revolution is that it's going to make us happier an egalitarian society. Do you think it makes us happier? Because we appear to, the internet, the internet didn't make us happier if you believe the data. I don't trust those data as a study yeah. of the internet. They look at only one set of causes. They don't look at how happy people are from all the friends they make through the internet, for instance. I think the internet 
probably has made 70 or 80 percent of people much happier. But we don't know. I think that's fair to say. Uh, I think AI will take away a lot of people's power. Say people like in media who may not be that wealthy, but they have a lot of social capital and they're highly influential and they're used to being able to get their kids into Harvard and that we might be in this new world where suddenly just no one cares about them anymore. Maybe that would make me happy to see that new world. I don't know. Or maybe I'm one of those people. I think it's very complex, but most people are not ready for it. And I think the non-income effects in many cases will be the more important effects, sort of status and influence. Does social trust go up or down? Maybe both. So the nice thing about an LLM, you can always ask it for the objective answer, the left-wing answer, the right-wing answer, and it will tell you. So it's not like Fox News or MSNBC where you get one thing. You could shout at your TV, tell me the other side of the story, and they won't do it, right? The LLM will. But the question is, how many people will want to do that? It will give us what we ask for. I think we still don't know what it is we collectively are going to ask for. It certainly has the potential to do much more to limit disinformation than to spread it. But we don't know yet. If all knowledge is social, you know, we're humans, where does AI fit in with that and the notion of truth? I don't know what it means to say all knowledge is social. LLMs seem to know an awful lot of things. I don't know if I would call them social. So I would revise the initial claim. I would say we have a new kind of knowledge. We've invented a new kind of intelligence in a way that is truly marvelous and takes your breath away. I'm still in awe of the magic when I use it. It feels to me like witchcraft. And it's just going to change how we view the world, our own abilities, how we raise our kids. What if your kid grows up talking to the LLM, which then like custom trains on how your kid learns? What's your kid going to be like? Will you approve? Will you disapprove? Doesn't matter if you disapprove. Maybe you'll just be the old fogey, right? So many huge questions. Again, I'm generally optimistic. When we have more intelligence on the table, my view is we can make a better go of that with a pretty high benefit to cost ratio. But I'd certainly admit that's not proven. I guess the follow-on from my question is, does AI create its own truth? And, and this is a basic question, but clearly there are some biases em embedded into it. Or maybe you think it's fewer and fewer, but there must be from the data it's seen versus the data it hasn't seen. It must be from some of the code behind it. So where does truth sit? Because you, you've said several times already that you think, ChatGPT is objective, and objective clearly is one step removed or linked to truth. So how does truth work? Well, I think GPT-4 is more objective than any other media source I know. I certainly wouldn't say it's fully objective, but it's quite objective. But that's also misleading because the near future will be a world where there are dozens of these models, maybe hundreds, and there'll be varying levels of quality. But for sure, they're not all going to be as objective as GPT-4. I'm pretty sure of that. So there'll be like a Donald Trump LLM. Elon Musk is building one. I don't know what he plans, but it's probably going to be different from uh, what Sam Altman has planned. And it's going to be a wild, woolly, super weird landscape, just like the early days of publishing, where you have all these pamphlets promoting bizarre ideologies like millenarianism and fifth monarchy men and everything, say, in 17th century England. And it will be like that phase of the Renaissance where just ideas proliferate. It will feel super weird. And we're going to be disoriented. But at the same time, for those people who want objectivity, it will be easier to find than ever before. Technology doesn't typically come with a rule book. Usually it's ahead of the rule. So what, what worries you most? We talked about constraints. We didn't really talk so much about what would worry you most. Do you worry that there may well be some sort of big cases that 
set it back because it's somehow liability was proven in a way that's unfair to the technology or is still ambiguous. How do you think about that? Well, this is two separate questions in there. One is what worries me most. And what worries me most is we have a world based on inertia and people expecting that their current privileges will more or less continue or even be extended. And LLMs will overturn that. And I'm not sure how people, our elites, other groups will respond politically, ideologically, or otherwise. That worries me a great deal. Now, in terms of liability, I don't think liability law will stop LLMs. I'm not sure how liability law will evolve. But keep in mind, these can be global services. And if you need to base your LLM in Estonia or in Bermuda or somewhere else, eventually this can happen. So the U.S. is not going to have a kind of great firewall. So the LLMs people want will be more or less the LLMs they get, even without open source. So I don't think changes to liability law ultimately will halt that process. They may slow it down a bit. Final question before I move on to talent, and I want to make the link between AI and talent. Just around the kind of the enablers, electricity, hardware, is that a fair summary of where you see the kind of the most attractive returns to capital optionality upside? And when you think about hardware enablers, will that be very concentrated in a few companies or would it be quite broadly distributed? So for every extra dollar created, quite a few people get to share in that dollar, or is it really going to go to one or two providers? You know, right now, NVIDIA with the H100 chip, that's seeing a lot of the value accruing to it as as implied by its recent share price moves. I think whether in AI or elsewhere, including perhaps electric vehicles, if you can create an enduring supply chain, that's something that's very hard for other people to copy. In investment terms, I would look at which companies can do that. Think about hardware and supply chains. And a lot of the AI service itself will become commodified and probably is not super high investment returns. But again, the people making the physical stuff, yes. Final question on AI, then I want to go to talent. But a world of abundant AI and abundant energy, where you don't have to, the cost is so low relative to income or, or whatever you want to compare it to. What does that world look like? I mean, it, it, it's different, right? We, we deal with scarcity. Scarcity primarily manifests, well, it comes through inflation. Often that's due to energy. A world where energy is just not a cost issue. It's abundant and plentiful. Access to AI is abundant and plentiful. That's a very different world, isn't it? Yes, if, if it... Clean, green energy is truly abundant. We can settle so many parts of the world so cheaply. For instance, so many parts of Africa that are underpopulated but have major problems with, say, water supply or something else in infrastructure. If we can do that, maybe it's small modular nuclear power, solar, geothermal, whatever it is, all the whole landscape of the, the world will change. You know, space settlement will become possible, everything. Uh, it's so many changes, it's really very hard to predict. I think it would outrace our imaginations. Not impossible in our lifetimes. I agree. Uh, I wouldn't take the 50-50 bet in my lifetime. I'm 61, but it's not crazy to think that I'll see it. Yeah. Okay, so you wrote a book about talent because overall we're not very good at identifying talent or even thinking about what talent is. Does AI help us in that quest? We don't know yet. So large language models, as they currently exist, are not designed to help you identify talent at all. But over time, let's say you have people in a poorer country and they grow up being taught by LLMs and working with LLMs. It's easy for me to imagine that the LLM will collect data on how rapidly and how well they learn. And there'll be third party certifiers 
and in essence say all the children of Kenya who do really well working with their LLMs, their names and emails will be sent to companies who will want to hire them. It seems to me that's quite likely to happen. That makes sense. That makes sense. So one of the things you say in your book is for most jobs, there is a table stakes level of intelligence. There's a minimum level of intelligence to do that job. But beyond that, the kind of correlation with success and IQ breaks down that there are other factors. That made a lot of sense to me. And I think that's very true in investing. It's very simplistic to assume high IQ relative to someone else implies better investor. There are other things at play. But what, as you've wrote the book and as you've thought about it since and talked to people, do you think we're getting closer for a given profession to understand the multi-factor model of success? So clearly there's a minimum level of intelligence required, but beyond that, there are other things. Have you thought some more about the context for each industry, the weightings of those things and the mix of those things? I think human intelligence is mattering less. AI will accelerate that trend. What seems to be mattering more and more, again, above a certain IQ threshold, is initiative and determination. Like, can you use all these tools? Will you set out to learn them and retrain yourself? Some people will, some people won't. But that's not so correlated with IQ, right? That's determination and initiative. I look for that more and more. How do you look for that? Because if you ask someone you're determined, they're going to say yes. Well, if it's someone who's older, you just look at their track record. Interviewing references is still underutilized by many people, by no means all. If it's someone who is very young and essentially doesn't have a track record and effusive praise from their high school teachers, while it may be true, you have to discount it because a lot of people can get it. I think you want to look at the question, at how young an age did they start their first project? And I find that to be somewhat predictive, by no means entirely. Uh, it's more predictive for males than for females. But if someone, say, started trying to build a nuclear fusion reactor when they were 12, I would bet on that person. I don't even care if they succeeded or if their parents helped them. The mere fact that they were out there doing something, I would put pretty high weight on. Women are more likely to be late bloomers for whatever reasons. So that's harder talent to spot. You need to have more of an open mind maybe think more about issues of social intelligence and just how their lives are going to evolve. But I would say we need to get better at spotting talent in young women. We're not very good at it right now. And it's not fair. It clearly isn't fair. So what, what, what concrete steps should people take? Well, it depends who you are, but just spending more time with young people would be my primary advice for many older individuals. I think uh, 13 to 19 year olds are grossly underrated. Those people will learn all the more quickly with artificial intelligence if they want to. And just having some part of your life connected to those individuals and what they're doing would be my main advice. I like your how many open browser tabs question. Have you used it? Have you refined it? Have you thought of some better questions to test for kind of curiosity? Here's my most recent question. It does not apply to all jobs, to be clear, but I find it useful in many cases. I say to the person, if you could go on a two or three day retreat, all expenses paid, and you get to invite three or four people or people you do not currently know and spend that weekend talking with those people, whom would you invite? I find that shows a lot what the person really cares about and just how creatively they think about how to advance themselves. And there's not like a single right answer, but if someone has no answer at all, I would say start worrying and look for an answer that's creative and a bit out of the box the person looks for people they can learn from. Some people, oddly enough, they name people that they want to give lectures to. 
which I don't know, for some jobs might be proper, but you tend to then think those individuals are not the best learners. So that's my new question. Yes. Who pops up most frequently in the shaded area of the Venn diagram there? Uh, there's basically no overlap so far. It's a very open-ended question, so people have very different interests. You know, I would say I'd love to spend some time with Magnus Carlsen and with Paul McCartney. Those are weird answers, but just not that many other people are going to say them, right? I don't think either are weird answers. Um, well, that's a sign that you're weird too. That's great. Maybe you would <laughs> say them. There's a lot of people who are super established, but they might be, in a sense, too established to help you. So say you chose Bill Gates for your two days. Is Bill Gates, obviously he has a big hand in a number of enterprises, but sometimes people like that are too high in the enterprise to actually get you hired or help you. So he's not obviously the best choice. I don't mean that as any kind of negative on Bill Gates, but just someone who can think through, like what's the level of knowledge, expertise, and, and doing stuff where the person actually can help me? I find this question a very good test of that. Like yes. if I spent two days with Bill Gates, I think it would be fascinating. I mean, maybe he, he would be pretty high on my list, but I don't actually think he could or would help me at all. He's too yep. famous. It's like spending a weekend with Barack Obama. Again, nothing against Obama, but I don't think he could help me at all. Someone I've never heard of who's in some mid-level position somewhere maybe could help me more. So it's just an open door to thinking about that kind of question. So I'm going to fire a few questions at you about you if, you, if you don't mind. There are very few people who say in public that they can read five books in an evening. Is that as much of a competitive answer to you as it sounds? And do you think that's going to be undermined by technology? You clearly got a skill-based competitive advantage. There are very few people, I think, who can do that. You clearly retain a lot of that information, so you've got a fantastic database, but you're still human. I think it's been a big advantage to me now, as you've mentioned, AI is here, large language models are here. So it's a new test of me. You know, do I have enough initiative to do things with large language models? I've already recorded a podcast with a large language model playing the role of Jonathan Swift. I thought it did a very good job. I've written a paper with Alex Tabarrok, how to use large language models to teach yourself economics. So I'm trying. I'm not sure it's for me to judge how successful I'm being. But if all I did was just flatline and be, oh, the guy who reads a lot of books and not take some new initiatives, I would say press the eject button on me. What do you most look forward to rereading? What have you reread most? Well, I can tell you what I'm taking on my next trip. So I have not read Lord of the Rings in 30 years. I think I'm looking forward to rereading it. We'll find out. Sigrid Unset, Christian Lavensrader. That very well-known uh, Nordic novel, very long. I read that it's maybe now almost 40 years ago. I'm more sure that I'll like that than I'm sure about Lord of the Rings. And uh, Dan Simmons, that two-volume science fiction set, you know, Hyperion novels, uh, I'm bringing those as well, which I think I'll still like quite a bit. Those I read first, more or less when they came out. That's not as long ago as the others. So by definition, that's what I'm looking forward to rereading. One final question. How would you like to be remembered? And that question obviously has a, in parentheses, that you're going to be a chatbot, so you will re be remembered. Uh, I don't think I really want to be remembered. So anyone remembered is, is misremembered, or they're remembered for things other than what they wanted. I think a lot of the projects I've undertaken, like blogging and podcasting, you get a big audience, a lot of attention now. I'm not sure how that lasts 20, 30 years out, but I suspect really not at all. And that's fine. 
I want to be remembered now in my lifetime for what I'm doing now. And uh, Robin Hanson and I have this discussion periodically. Robin wants to be remembered 100 years from now for something he's doing currently. I don't. I think it's a waste. It's a bad investment. It's like earning incredible returns on your portfolio after you're gone. Why bother? <laughs> okay, well, Tyler, I want to say thank you very much for answering all my questions. I admire the way you do your podcast. You ask lots of very, very good questions very quickly. At least I asked lots of questions quickly. I, I don't think they were as intelligent as yours. But thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and a treat to have you on. Thank you. It's greatly appreciated. And uh, keep in touch. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Active Share. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, and Spotify. And if you'd like, please leave us a review. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at active.williamblair.com and follow us on Instagram at williamblairim. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording, are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate, and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.